The following audio presentation is from Parkwood Baptist Church. The purpose of Parkwood Baptist Church is to glorify God by laboring together for the growth of all believers while going with the gospel to all peoples. More information about Parkwood Baptist Church is available at parkwoodonline.org. That's parkwoodonline.org. So we're in Psalm 41 today. So I invite you, if you would, to stand as Joseph comes to read the Word of God. Psalm 41, to the choir master, a psalm of David. Blessed is the one who considers the poor. In the day of trouble, the Lord delivers him. The Lord protects him and keeps him alive. He is called blessed in the land. You did not give him up to the will of his enemies. The Lord sustains him on his sickbed. In his illness, you restore him to full health. As for me, I said, O oh Lord, be gracious to me. Heal me, for I have sinned against you. My enemies say of me in malice, when will he die and his name perish? And when one comes to see me, he utters empty words while his heart gathers iniquities. When he goes out, he tells it abroad. All who hate me whisper together about me. They imagine the worst for me. They say, a deadly thing has been poured out on him. He will not rise again from where he lies. Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. But you, O Lord, be gracious to me and raise me up that I may repay them. By this I know that you delight in me. My enemy will not shout and triumph over me. But you have upheld me because of my integrity and set me in your presence forever. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Amen and amen. Father, we say that you are good. We say that you are faithful. We say that you are gracious. We say, blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. For you have placed that song in our heart. For you have raised us up as you raised up Christ, and we stand firm and secure in you alone. And so, Father, I pray that as your word goes forth, you help us to see you as gracious, even in the midst of our neediness, and that you would be exalted amongst your people today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may or may not agree with me, but we live in a time and a world and particularly a culture that is incredibly demanding. People think they deserve everything. People think they deserve much. This really came to a head the last couple of weeks as these rich and famous people paid large sums of money to get their children into prestigious schools. Now, what would drive a person to do that? Well, they think their kid deserves it. And they think they can demand it by, by the use of funds. Now, we can look at the rich and powerful and say, oh, that's them. But we're the same way. We live in, in, in a culture that shares this kind of mentality. And sadly, even God's people are reflecting some of these things. Now, I want to say this before I get into this message in depth. 
If you just read the first few verses of Psalm 41, you could get an errant thought and believe a wrong thing. In other words, here's what you could think. You could think David was demanding something because he deserved it. I want to help you see that that's not the case. Here's what I want to help you to see today, that the blessed rely on the grace of the everlasting Lord, that we always stand in the need of grace, a need for what we cannot earn and what we do not deserve. Now, Psalm 41 is the last chapter in what is called book one of the Psalms. If you'll notice above Psalm 42, if you look in the Bible, it says book two. So like most of the Psalms in book one, it's attributed to David, to the choir master's Psalm of David. It, it is a God-centered Psalm that, that culminates many of the themes that we found in chapters one through 41. That directly connects from verse 17. For I am poor and needy, but the Lord takes thought for me. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, O my God. So understanding, David communicating that we are a poor and needy people. Then it begins with the word blessed or blessed. Now let's turn all the way back to Psalm 1. Psalm 1. So you'll notice the first word in Psalm 1 is blessed or blessed. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. Now, with Psalm 1 being the first book of the book 1 and Psalm 41 being the last book of book 1, it doesn't take much thought to say the blessed word is significant here. There's something going on and to what the Psalter is communicating to us. Now we begin, blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of wicked or stand in the way of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord and on his law he meditates day and night. And it talks about how he produces fruit and the wicked are not so. The wicked are gonna be cut off. They're going to perish. I encourage if you were not here when we studied through Psalm 1 to go back and listen to the message because ultimately, Psalm 1 is pointing us to the blessed man, who is Jesus Christ our Lord. He is the only one who has not walked in the counsel of the wicked or stood in the way of sinners or sat in the seat of scoffers. He is the only one who has a pure delight in the law of the Lord, and he is the only one who is purely like a tree planted by streams of water. But through Christ and our trusting in Christ, we reflect the blessed man, that we delight in the Lord, that we don't walk in the way of sinners, and we, like Christ, produce fruit. But we continue to battle. Psalm 32. Let me turn there. Continue to battle in our lives the ongoing issues of our flesh. Psalm 32.1 says, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. We are blessed because our sin has been forgiven and covered because Christ, the blessed man, kept the law perfectly in our place. And by his grace, when we trust in the work of Christ, we are forgiven and our sins are covered. Now we come to an application of what it means to be blessed. 
Blessed is the one who considers the poor. So what I want you to see today in our first section, this first stanza, verses one through three, is that the Lord graciously sustains his own. Blessed is the one who considers the poor. The word blessed means that you're a recipient of divine grace. The outcome of being a recipient of divine grace is that you consider the poor. Now, I'm going to take a few minutes on this phrase, consider the poor. It means, quite literally, that you pay close attention to the poor, that you apply wisdom so that you do the right thing to the poor. The word poor could also be translated helpless, so you don't just need to think economic here. This is a person who finds themselves in a helpless situation. Spurgeon said of this phrase, They do not toss them a penny and go about their way, but inquire into their sorrows, sift out their cause, study the best ways for relief, and practically come to their rescue. Such of these have the mark of divine favor plainly upon them. Surely they are the sheep of the Lord's pasture. What's what's Spurgeon saying? He's saying the evidence that we have been marked by God's divine grace is that we move toward those who are in need, those who are poor and helpless. And we don't just toss a penny at them. We consider how we might best help. There's a book called When Helping Hurts. I want to commend it to all of you that are involved locally or through the mission of this church where we are interacting with helpless and poor people. It's crucial that we understand that we can hurt someone in our helping if we go at it the wrong way. That's why the Bible is not just saying help the poor. It says consider, think about how you might best help them. In other words, here's what we don't want to do. We don't just want to solve immediate needs. Somebody in a desperate situation, that's what they want. They They want the need that they're under right now met. I understand that. But what we need to do is to move beyond solving the immediate need and deal with the core issues and seek a lasting, reproducible solution. And here's a question then. Why do God's people consider the helpless? Here's why. Because in our helpless state, the Lord has delivered us. The Lord sustains us. This came in my inbox early this morning. One of our Central Asian workers recently led a young Afghanistan uh, male to faith in Christ. He has become a Christian. He is not in the country. They're in a city outside of the country. And as a result, this young man's father back in Afghanistan has found out that his son has become a Christian. And he is demanding that his son come home immediately. So the the worker was communicating in this email to me and many others. What's the right thing to do? What is the biblical thing to do with this young man? Then last night he finds out, the worker, finds out that a wealthy American has found out about this situation And he's come with money. And he's going to 
provide for this young man whatever he needs. And the worker's asking the question, is this the right thing to do? You see, you got to ask a bigger question than the threat over this young man, who, by the way, this young man said last night to the worker, I'm ready to die. What's the bigger gospel issue? What is the, the larger plan that God may be doing? Now, I'm going to talk about myself, and if this applies to you, fine. If it doesn't apply to you, you've never felt this. We all probably, or some of us, struggle with this need to be important. To be the Savior. Here you go. Here's some money. Put my name on the building. Let it be known that I, I bailed this thing out. Brothers and sisters, here's what we got to be careful of. In being obedient to God to care for those who are in need, we must consider that which we are doing. Because ultimately, here's what we want people to understand. In the day of trouble, the Lord delivers him. Now, this is directly applied to the person who is blessing the poor. So David's talking about himself. But we also want the poor to understand that. We're not the Savior. It is God who delivers. Now, this is a repeated notion in Psalms 1 through 41. It's really throughout the whole Psalter. In the day of trouble, the Lord delivers him. So what's it saying? It's saying that God's people are not immune to trouble. The Lord does not promise to keep us from trouble. He promises to keep us through trouble. And ultimately, he promises to deliver us. Plummer said, we may reasonably calculate on being both sick and sad. We need to prepare for such trials. This is, this is really my prayer. This is what I'm pleading with God because there's so many things going on in the life of this church right now in people's lives, just heartbreaking, heart-wrenching things. Brothers and sisters, I, I pray the Psalms are preparing you to understand that God has told you how to respond when these moments come. He's telling you they're coming. Some of you are going, I, I don't know if I agree with that. Here's why you don't agree with that. It's because there's this American form of Christianity that says, give and God will keep you from trouble. You ever heard that one? It means bargain with God. You do something and you, he's got to do something for you. This is not what's being taught here. It is God's grace that moves toward us. Verse 2. You see, the Lord delivers in verse 1. The Lord protects him. It's God. And keeps him alive. He, that is the Lord, is called blessed in the land. You do not give him up to the will of his enemies. The Lord sustains him on his sickbed. In his illness, you restore him. You, the Lord, restore him to full health. This is a God-centered way of seeing what God is doing it is not a man-centered way of seeing it. 
Now, this all began with this idea, this blessed is the one who considers the poor. Now, you say, well, that's an Old Testament idea. All right, let's turn over to the New Testament and let's see if this might be a New Testament idea. Jesus taught the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5. He uses the exact same word, blessed or blessed. Look at verse 7. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive what? Okay, so is Jesus saying that the way you get mercy is to give mercy? You got to look at the whole principle of what Jesus is teaching. You got to look at the old Sermon on the Mount and understand it. Here's what Jesus is saying that the evidence of mercy received is mercy given. So, Spurgeon again, to imagine a man to be a Christian who does not consider the poor as he has ability is to conceive of a fruitless tree. So if you continue in the Sermon on the Mount and you get over to chapter 7, he ends with this illustration of good fruit and bad fruit. The evidence that we have in fact received the mercy of God is the good fruit in our lives. Now I warned you at the beginning that if you just took this stanza, you could argue yourself into a way to come off with the religious idea that God gives us payment for our good works. That we get healed because we take care of the poor. That's why we don't read the Bible in isolation. We read it in context. So the next stanza, the next area clears up a possible wrong theology. And here's what we see in this next stanza, that the Lord graciously forgives and restores his own. I want you to notice the book ends. Verse four, as for me, I said, O Lord, what? Be gracious to me. Now look at verse 10. <clears throat> but you, O Lord, be gracious to me. Now don't answer out loud because people got it wrong in the first service and it scared me. So just keep your answer to yourself. I'm going to ask a rhetorical question. Don't answer. Does David think he deserves to be healed? No. That's why David prays in verse 4, O Lord, be gracious to me. Give me what I do not deserve. Heal me, for I have sinned against you. And this is very similar to Psalm 38, where it's clearly tied that sometimes, not every time that we find ourselves sick, that sickness is a result of sin. It's also taught in 1 Corinthians 11. You can go back and listen to that sermon to get a full explanation. But here it appears David's saying the same thing. Heal me for I've sinned. So I'm sick. I'm in difficulty because I've sinned against you. Be gracious to me. Now, in the midst of David languishing here on his sickbed, his enemies see an opportunity to pounce on him again. Verse 5. My enemies say of me in malice, this is incredible hatred, when will he die and his name perish? We want him to die and we want him forgotten. And when one comes to see me, he utters empty words while his heart gathers iniquity. So David's laying on his sickbed, and somebody's coming in, acting all nice to him, brought him flowers. They're being kind, but they're engaging him in conversation. And what they're trying to get David to say is they offer these empty words, I'm so sorry for how you feel, etc. They're gathering 
things in a sinful way, gathering iniquity, so that when they go out, they can tell people. Maybe, maybe they're making enough of a theological conclusion to say, hey, David, you sinned here, so once you confess it to me and let me help you work through it. And then they go out and tell people. <laughs> so, so can I help you relationally for a minute? If you start the first time you meet with people, this has happened to me more than once as pastor. First time I ever met with somebody, they say something like this. You know, I, I just believe God sent me here to be your friend so you can, you can trust me to be a confidant. Now, I ain't stupid. So don't, you may be sincere if you say that to me, but don't you plan on me telling you a thing if you lead the conversation that way. Trust is built in the context of relationships over a period of time. And let's just be honest. People manipulate people all the time, and that's what's happening to David here. They're coming at him in his point of his greatest need, acting like they're going to help him, but actually what they want to do is hurt him. They want to harm him. He says, All who hate me whisper against me. They imagine the worst for me. So in their conversations, they're trumping up all the bad things that can and will happen to David. Then verse 8. They say a deadly thing is poured out on him. He will not rise again from where he lies. Now, it's very important in what I'm going to say next that you understand what I'm not saying. David is talking about what these wicked people believe and what they're saying. He's not saying it's true. It's like Job's friend speaking and when you're reading through Job. You've got to be careful that you're not taking what Job's friends say and treat it like that's something from God. This is not from God, what I'm saying next. It's recorded for you to know this isn't happening. They say a deadly thing is poured out on him. You know, quite literally, here's what it says in the Hebrew. We've put a curse on him. We've put a hex on him. And he's not going to get up from that bed again. He's going to die. Now, I don't know if you've ever had that, but I've, I've had people tell me they've put a curse on me before. Okay, I believe spiritual warfare is real. I believe there's some wicked people in the world, but I believe greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. I, I, I trust in God. You're not God, and you can do whatever, and you can call on whoever you want to call on. It is God who protects his people. But here's how whacked these people are. They're convinced that his sickness is a result of their hex. Now, if that's not bad enough, Verse 9 amps it up. Even my close friend whom I trusted who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. All right, so let's, let's help you understand this from a Hebrew culture. To share bread, to break bread with somebody is one of the most intimate friendships you can do. To sit over a meal is to say, we are close. We are friends. So they've shared bread together and then he says, he's lifted his heel against me. This will date some of you. Do you remember when George Bush was in Iraq doing a press conference and the guy stood up and threw his shoe at him? It wasn't the shoe. He wasn't intending to kill him. He was doing something that, that, that Middle Eastern culture says. If I show you my heel, that is a curse. That is to say to you, I hate you. It is to stick your middle finger up at somebody. 
It's, it's an awful thing to do. He's lifted his heel. I want to crush you. I hate you. Now, here's where the psalm is going to open up to you if you're struggling with it. Let's turn to John chapter 13. And let's seek to understand what is happening here and what David, who is explaining events in his life, is serving as a type to point us forward. Now, in John chapter 13, Jesus has washed his disciples' feet. Now, they didn't deserve that. The Son of God is washing their feet. He, he, he clears that up in verse 17 when he says, if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. So be merciful to each other. Verse 18, I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. That is an absolute direct quote from Psalm 41. That he who lifted his, ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. Now, who's Jesus talking about? Judas. Now, we know Judas on the backside primarily. Judas held the place of treasure among the disciples. That means they trusted him implicitly. It had to be utter shock among the disciples when Judas is the one who betrays Jesus. And what Jesus is saying here, the scripture is fulfilled. I didn't realize we were reading anything prophetic in Psalm 41. So now we go back to Psalm 41 with this in our mind, that Jesus says this is fulfilled. And we hear... Even my close friend whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. Ultimately, here's what it does. It opens the door up for Jesus to be arrested, which then he is condemned, and then he is brought to the cross where he dies in our place for our sin. So we see in this that Jesus emptying himself, becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross, and on the cross, According to 2 Corinthians 5.21, he became sin on our behalf. He took what he did not deserve to give us what we do not deserve. Three days later, he rose from the grave. Now with that connection, we go back to Psalm 41 and we read verse 10. But you, O Lord, be gracious to me and what? Raise me up that I may repay them. Now again, if you're just reading this and you're reading it from David's perspective, you're like, David wants to get vindication? You say, well, it's what it appears. Well, let's remember this. David was king, and, and David could vindicate his office as king. But when we think of it from a perspective of Christ and the fulfillment in Christ, then we go to Psalm 2. So I want you to turn to Psalm 2. Psalm 1 and 2 really can be taken together. That Jesus is the blessed man and that Jesus is the one clearly spoken of in Psalm 2. I'll pick up in verse 7. I will tell the decree the Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them like, in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O king, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. 
Kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way for his wrath is quickly kindled. The one whom they betrayed, the one whom they killed, the one who went to the cross on our behalf, the one who has risen again and is seated at the right hand of the father is coming again and he will repay them. Verse 12, blessed are all who take refuge in him. The blessed people are those who by God's grace take refuge in Christ. Now we go back to Psalm 41. Tying these things together and here's what we see. That the Lord graciously upholds his own. By this I know that you delight in me. What, 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 did, what did the father say to the son at his baptism? This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. By this I know that you delight in me. My enemy will not shout in triumph over me, for you have beheld me because of my integrity. So, so am I going to stand before God and say, you've upheld me because of my integrity? I don't know about you, but I'm not real confident in that one. I know me. And set me in your presence forever. Why, why, why can David make this claim? Because Hebrews 1.3, he is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and upholds the universe by the word of his power. This is speaking of Christ. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So those who are in Christ are upheld because of the finished work of Christ. Jude's doxology at the end of the little book Jude, right before Revelation, says, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory and majesty, dominion and authority before all time, now and forever. We are upheld because the righteousness of Christ has been poured out on us. It's not a righteousness of our own. We are upheld because of him. And because of Christ, we are brought into the very presence of God, blameless. That means with integrity. We're brought into the very presence of him through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Now, what are we going to do with that? What do we do with it now? And what are we going to do with that at the moment of being brought into his glory? We're going to glory, give glory and majesty and authority to him before all time. Now, now we worship him and forevermore. Now that leads me to the so what? What, what do we do with this? Go back to Psalm 41 now if you're not there. Psalm 41, verse 13. Blessed be the Lord the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting, amen and amen. I didn't put it as a question. I just wanted to let this text stand on its own. But here's, here's the question I'm answering. What is the right response to God's grace? Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting, amen and amen. Now let me show you something. This is the end of book one. Let's go to the end of book two. Turn to Psalm 72. Psalm 72. Psalm 72, and look in verse 18. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, 
who alone does wondrous things. Blessed be his glorious name forever and ever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. I'll explain verse 20 when we get there eventually. Turn to Psalm 89. This is the end of book three. Psalm 89. Blessed be the Lord forever. Amen and amen. Now go to Psalm 106. This is the end of book four, verse 48. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. And let all the people say, Amen. Praise the Lord. Now that sets us up for the last benediction, Psalm 150. It's not the last verse, the entire psalm. Praise the Lord. Praise God in his sanctuary. Praise him in his mighty heavens. Praise him for his mighty deeds. Praise him according to his excellent greatness. Praise him with trumpet sound. Praise him with lute and harp. Praise him with the tambourine and dance. Praise him with strings and pipe. Praise him with sounding cymbals. Praise him with loud crashing cymbals. Let everything that hath breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. All right, brothers and sisters, let's, let's sum up Psalm 41 and let's sum up 41 chapters that we've worked through. Here's what the Psalms should be doing to you. It should be clarifying and giving an understanding to your theology. Here's what I mean. What you believe about God. That you're understanding that the Psalms are about the Lord God Almighty. They're about who he is, his character. It's about what he does. It's about his grace and his goodness. The second thing that should be happening is you should have a response of doxology. That is worship. Understanding who God is should invite us to worship the Lord God. It's not just a means of study to where we learn some things about the Psalms. It's that it leads us to understand exactly who God is and it leads us to worship him in spirit and in truth. It leads us to an affirmation. You heard it repeated at the end of each one of these. Amen and amen. I've noticed this. Even the pagans use amen. I've noticed on like talk shows, even sports, like they'll be talking about something, somebody will say something, they'll nod their heads, amen, you got it, that's right, amen. What are we saying when we say amen? Is that just, is that just a, a word that, that, that came out of or is exclusive to the church or does it have meaning? Now, it did originate, it's a Hebrew word, it's transliterated, amen. If we translate it in English, here's what it means. Yes, or surely. Golden Gay, who is an Old Testament and Hebrew scholar, says, it signifies, the word amen, signifies a personal commitment to the preceding affirmation. What's he saying? Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. So when you say amen, 
you're not just saying that's true. Here's what you're saying. I bank my life on that. I bank it all right here. Blessed be the Lord, the covenant-keeping, gracious God, the God of Israel, the God of the Bible, who is from everlasting to everlasting. He, he alone is worthy of worship. He alone is worthy of praise. He alone is worthy of my life. So I ask you, brothers and sisters, is Psalm 4113 your joyful affirmation? Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Amen and amen. I want you to bow where you're at. I want you to, I want you to penetrate your own heart with that question. Is this my joyful affirmation? There's several people in this room right now, several categories of people. There are those of you that are in the throes of lament and difficulty. And maybe today it's hard for you to see because you don't comprehend what God is doing. The Psalms are so honest and they, 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 they reveal those kind of prayers, those kind of moments. But in all of those Psalms, they point us to this. He's the everlasting God. He, he hadn't moved and he hadn't changed. That's the only thing can hold you together today. He's God. Then there are those of you who think you deserve something because of what you've done. He's God. You're not. You need to confess your sin before him and cry out to him that through Christ alone that he would save you and transform you. Lord, for those who have lost their joy, God, I pray for them. Those who have never known joy, I pray for them. That we would all look to Christ. The one who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising its shame. And now is seated at the right hand of the Father. Blessed be the God, the Lord, the God of Israel. You're everlasting to everlasting. You are alone are the God who saves. So Lord, I pray now that as we rise, that your people would worship you. For those whom you're calling to yourself, that they would confess their need to Christ. For those who are lamenting, God, hold them up. Hold them together. Plead this in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen. Thanks for listening to this audio presentation from Parkwood Baptist Church, located in Gastonia, North Carolina. Please feel free to share this message with others. For more information about Parkwood Baptist Church, visit parkwoodonline.org. That's parkwoodonline.org.